One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before you begin, here's a special code that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on our app. That's newscientist.com slash POD20 to get your 20% discount. Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm your other host this week, Sam Wong. Coming up on the show this week, we've got a different kind of quantum computer and a way to use viruses to beat antibiotic-resistant superbugs. We'll also be looking at what living with COVID really means and hearing from our reporter in Australia, Alice Klein, about the once-in-a-millennium volcanic eruption in Tonga earlier this week. Plus, we'll be hearing from the anthropologist Beth Singler about how our fear or reverence for artificial intelligence is actually blinding us from asking important questions. We are joined in the pod this week by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage and Alex Wilkins. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, both. So, let's get stuck in. We'll start this week with the phrase of the moment, living with COVID. Penny, you've been editing a lot of stories on this recently. What's the latest? Right, so the very latest, as we're recording this, is that Plan B restrictions in England will end on the 26th of January. So that's things like working from home where possible, wearing masks in shops on public transport... And then on top of that, the legal requirement for people with COVID-19 to self-isolate will apparently be allowed to expire on the 24th of March. And so none of that is that much of a surprise. We've, we've heard rumblings for a week or two about a plan to live with COVID. There's rather a lot of discussion at the moment about whether this is a political move rather than a sort of science-based move. But without getting into any of that, it is sort of a good time really to think about what living with COVID really means and, and also what we can reasonably expect when we think about an end to this pandemic. Yeah, so the thing that gets me is, haven't we been living with COVID for two years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so for some people, living with COVID has come to mean removing all restrictions and just living with the consequences. But we do know what those consequences will be. It will always mean a higher number of deaths than necessary. So in reality, living with COVID really means finding a way to get on with life with proportionate actions to keep the death rate as low as possible. It's clear we're not going to eliminate this virus. So that's the only reasonable alternative. So does that just mean it's going to be more of the same with uh, waves of new variants, periods of increased restrictions and boosters and all the rest of it? That's actually sort of the worst case 
do nothing scenario. So if we remove all restrictions and allow a high level of viral infection, we may just be dooming ourselves to repeat everything we've gone through over the last few years. So we may have more variants just emerging, sweeping in, pushing up hospitalizations and deaths. And of course, there is this possibility that some variants may be a lot worse than Omicron has been. But in a piece for us this week, the writer Michael Marshall, he he explains that we can actually do better than that. So with global coordination of vaccine rollouts, uh, treatments, preventative measures, we can actually seek to bring down death rates and make the evolution of new variants less likely or less frequent. So living with COVID doesn't have to mean a do nothing approach. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's not actually abnormal. So quite often when people are talking about, you know, what's the future of COVID or the coronavirus, people talk about things like flu. And, And some people have started suggesting we should be shrugging it off like flu now. But we don't actually shrug flu off. So many countries, including the UK, they really closely monitor flu. We roll out new vaccines every year. It does actually, despite that, still kill large numbers of people every winter and causes crises at hospitals. So we have quite an involved approach to flu. And and that's the kind of thing we can expect from COVID-19. So the question really here is, how much more can we bring uh, the deaths down? Because just as efforts on flu have really actually brought down flu deaths over recent decades, that's the kind of question we should now be asking about COVID-19 in the longer term. What are the most important things to get right then? So of course, we need to get more vaccines to more people. There's still huge inequality here. And then we're not just talking about poor nations and rich nations necessarily. So the UK, for example, is actually quite behind on vaccinating children compared to some other comparable nations. We can't really expect infections to stabilise at a manageable level if the virus is still tearing through schools. Then there are things like ventilation. That That's a big win. Um, so if you think about, you know, if, if we were to ha- have improved standards of ventilation required in public buildings, that wouldn't actually impact upon personal choices or freedoms, but we know it would reduce viral transmission. And, you know, it, it's fair to say that there's certainly going to be a place for mask wearing in some circumstances for a while yet. But also, I've, I feel it's probably worth mentioning too that we're, we're not just talking about deaths. That becomes a, a bit of a shorthand for the Im- impact of the virus. But many people are experiencing long COVID and and we're still trying to get a handle on how common, how treatable this kind of umbrella of conditions that can come after COVID are. Um, Our government seems to be determined to remove all the restrictions completely and just get on with it. Uh, And that certainly sounds easier. Can't we just do that? Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it does sound easier. And, you know, it, um, the mental effort of, of COVID for all of us the last few years has been considerable and it's exhausting. But the thing we need to remember is is that there's no lasting herd immunity for the coronavirus. Um, immunity from infection and vaccines wanes. So if we just give up on any attempt to try to stabilise infection rates and to, to stabilise them at a relatively low level, then to some extent, we'll just see the virus, it will just keep sweeping through the population in these waves of misery we've already experienced so many of. Just to inject a positive note, though, it's, it's worth pointing out that while immunity to getting infected does wane fast, that immunity to becoming severely ill or dying should hold up much longer. Mm. So yeah, we might well get wave after wave of new variants, but the expectation is certainly that fewer people should end up in hospital each time, which is just what we've seen over the past two years. It's certainly possible that a future variant could be much deadlier, as you said earlier, but it's something we can't rule out rather than something that we are predicting will happen. Thanks for that, Michael. Um, Michael LePage is very much our virus evolution expert, so nice to have some a positive note to end on there. 
Now let's turn to what's happening in Tonga, where the massive eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'apai volcano on Saturday has caused widespread damage. I spoke to our reporter Alice Klein, who witnessed some of the giant waves caused by the volcano crashing into a local beach in Australia over 3,000 kilometres away. So Alice, it must have been a pretty powerful eruption then for the impacts to be felt at your end of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, well, scientists who've studied this particular volcano, they think it only erupts this violently about once every thousand years. And the last two mega eruptions occurred around AD 1100 and 200. And I don't know if you've seen the satellite images, but they're pretty incredible. You see this mushroom cloud of ash billowing out and covering an area the size of the UK within an hour. And the blast also caused this pressure wave that rippled through the atmosphere at more than a thousand kilometers per hour. And it was actually picked up by detectors in the US, UK and Europe. Yeah, I saw a video on Twitter, I think, from Fiji, where you can hear the sonic boom created by the shockwave. And it's it's terrifying. It sounds like a bomb. Yeah, well, another terrifying thing was that the eruption sparked almost 400,000 lightning bolts above wow. the volcano as bits of ash rubbed against each other and against ice particles in the atmosphere. And that created electrical charges. And the eruption also triggered a tsunami with waves apparently of up to 15 metres crashing into Tonga. And actually where I live on the coast, um, just north of Sydney, we got a tsunami warning on Saturday night, which meant that the beaches were shut. But I had a look from the clifftop and the waves were absolutely ferocious, like I've never seen before. And uh, in Japan and South America, on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, they also reported very powerful waves rolling in there. So we've been able to kind of have a look at the the big geological effects, but what kind of damage is there actually in the ground in Tonga? It's only about 60 kilometres from the eruption. Yeah, well, the weird thing was for the first few days after the eruption, we actually had no idea what the situation in Tonga was because their main undersea phone and internet cable was damaged by the blast. I mean, it seems strange in this day and age to not be able to get information instantly, But I was watching a press conference with Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, on Sunday, the day after the eruption. And she said that even she hadn't been able to get in contact with the Prime Minister of Tonga. And New Zealand is one of their closest neighbours and allies. So then it wasn't actually until late on Tuesday, about three days after the eruption, that the Tongan government was finally able to put out an official statement. And they said it was an unprecedented disaster and nearly all houses on some islands had been destroyed and they'd officially recorded three deaths. And Tonga's made up of lots of different islands, and they still haven't haven't actually contacted some of the islands yet. Hmm. So what happens now? Well, it sounds pretty bad. Um, Shops in Tonga are reportedly running out of food and water supplies are contaminated with ash. But it's difficult for New Zealand and Australia and other neighbours to deliver food and clean drinking water because the runways are damaged and covered in ash. So they're having to send supplies by boat which is obviously a lot slower. And the other issue is that Tonga is currently COVID-free, so there's a risk that aid operations may introduce the virus to the country and add a new level to the disaster. And then finally, the other thing is that the volcanoes released a lot of sulfur dioxide, so there are concerns that that's going to cause acid rain to fall down on Tonga and, and nearby Fiji, and that can damage crops and also affect the drinking water. So really quite a concerning situation there. Is there a danger too that there might be further eruptions? Well, I spoke to a volcano expert from the University of Auckland in New Zealand, uh, Shane Cronin, and he actually camped on this volcano in 2015 in order Mm. to study it. 
which does seem a little bit risky in hindsight. And he said that it looks like its general pattern involves building up magma for around 900 to 1,000 years, then reaching this breaking point and exploding and then quietening down again. So he said there could be some smaller eruptions in the coming days or weeks, but he doesn't think that they would be as violent as the one on Saturday. Time out. It's time for us to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an extensive library of interactive courses. They explore things like the science of infinity, casino probability, and there's even a course on how search engines work. Later on, we're going to be hearing from Bessinger about how humans tend to fear and revere artificial intelligence. One way to stay level-headed and to ask the right questions of this technology is to clue yourself up on how AI actually works. Head over to Brilliant's Introduction to Neural Networks course to get all the info you need. Also, our next story is all about quantum computers. If you come away wanting to know more, then check out the course on Brilliant, which teaches you all about the technology and even lets you create your own algorithms using a simulated quantum computer. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. You can get started learning on Brilliant today for free and the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. We'll pop a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, we've spoken on the podcast before about the battle to build the best quantum computers, but this week we're looking at a different way of doing quantum computing. Alex, what's the story here? So... All quantum computers use something called qubits as building blocks. They're a bit like the bits that regular computers use. The biggest quantum computers so far have used either superconducting qubits, like Google's, or used charged atoms trapped by lasers. There have been a few teams that have found success in the last year by building machines using uh, regular neutral atoms as qubits. These atoms can actually avoid a lot of the problems of the other systems, and some of the research involved see these neutral atom machines as a bit of a dark horse. So is Google backing the wrong horse by uh, trying to build theirs with superconducting qubits? Uh, Not exactly. One of the really big advantages of the neutral atom machines is that the qubits are all interconnected and they're really easy to move about. The superconducting and trapped ion systems don't really have that level of interconnectivity, especially when you build out systems with lots of qubits. So the neutral atom machines could be really good for running algorithms that need loads of connections between the qubits. But that, that doesn't really mean the superconducting qubit systems are a waste of money. They're still really the only systems that we built that can work at scale and loads of engineering work has gone into making them work without any errors. We could end up with a scenario in the end, a bit like today's computing processes, 
where you have specialized chips like graphics processing units or GPUs and tensor processing units used for machine learnings sitting alongside more conventional CPUs. Okay, so um, what are the breakthroughs that have got scientists so excited about neutral atom machines? So one of the really big benefits of these systems is that they're not too difficult to scale up. With trapped iron machines, the charge makes them a bit unruly when you try and cram a lot of them together. For superconducting qubits, it's quite hard to supercool them all down. But with atoms, there's no charges to worry about, or complex supercooling. You can just use lasers. So a lot of work has gone into showing these systems can easily scale up. But a big breakthrough recently has been in building a digital system, which basically means you can run any algorithm on them. So is that digital like your radio is digital? A little bit. It's, uh, it's in contrast to what's called analog systems, which are specific quantum computers set up to solve specific problems. A digital system is one which can run any quantum algorithm you throw at it. In December, there was a team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they managed to make one of these digital quantum computers from neutral atoms, which got people really excited. It shows that this method is a, is a really viable way to make quantum computers. That sounds promising. So um, are, are Google and IBM going to start pouring their money into this technology? Well, it's difficult to say. It's still very early days for these neutral atom machines. They've shown they can make these digital quantum computers work on a small scale. But when you expand that to hundreds or even thousands of qubits, you have to start dealing with all sorts of other problems like noise and errors. When I spoke to one of the researchers involved, he said that he thinks the road ahead is harder, not easier. That being said, there are some startups trying to attract investment and build out this technology into viable commercial quantum computers. There's one startup in France which is trying to build analog machines of thousands of neutral atom qubits, and the Wisconsin team are involved in a startup that's trying to commercialize their digital computer, and they foresee it being online maybe this year, maybe the next. So watch this space. Next up, we're talking about phages, viruses that kill bacteria. So for years, there's been rumbling interest in using these as an alternative to antibiotics. And Michael, you've been reporting on this quite a lot lately. What's going on? So the the good news is that it's gradually starting to be adopted. It's not only been used to treat infections in people, but also to make the food we eat safer. And there's even a company in Scotland that's developing phage treatment for plant diseases that farmers would apply to fields. So let's just go back a step. What exactly is phage therapy? As Penny said, it's using viruses to kill bacteria. So there are these viruses called bacteriophages that look like little moon landers. They sort of land on a bacterium, inject their DNA inside it, replicate and then burst it open, releasing lots and lots of new phages that go on to kill lots of lots more bacteria. And so crucially, phages can kill bacteria even if those bacteria are resistant to antibiotics. Exactly. So phage therapy was actually first used in the 1920s, but then it was largely abandoned in the favour of antibiotic drugs. But now with antibiotic resistance rising, and there was a report out yesterday saying that a million people died of antibiotic resistant infections in 2019. With antibiotic resistance rising, there's growing interest in, in phages. In most countries, it's still really difficult for doctors to get approval to use phage therapy, but Belgium has introduced a special system to make it easier, and over 100 people have been treated there now. So in what sort of circumstances are are people being given this treatment? It's still very much been used as a last resort, for instance, when people have persistent infections that have been going on for months or, or even years that antibiotic treatments have repeatedly failed to clear up. So there was a case study out of a woman in Belgium who was injured in a suicide bombing and her wounds still hadn't healed properly after two years because of a persistent infection, just an awful case. 
so she was finally given phage therapy and months after that her condition improved enormously and she, she's sort of much better and you know actually able to sort of do cycling and sort of walk walk to some extent with crutches now. How safe is it to use these viruses to treat people, especially if they're already very ill? Well, the, the thing is, these phages are everywhere. They're the most common biological entity on Earth. You're covered <laughs> with them inside and out. So it's estimated that there are quadrillion phages in your gut alone. That's Quadrillion? A quadrillion, <laughs> 10 to the power of 15. Wow. And the, the second thing is that they, they're very specific. So and if you take any one phage that's only capable of infecting a specific strain of a specific species of bacterium, and that, in fact, in fact that's a big limitation. That's actually the big problem with phage therapy. Right. So you can't use just any phage to treat an infection. You have to get exactly the right one. Yeah. So uh, for treating patients, you actually have to go out, you have to look at what bacterium they have and then go out and find a phage that can kill that specific bacterium. And even after you've found one, it might need to be evolved in the lab to make it more effective. Does that mean each phage treatment has to be created specifically for each patient? Yes, that's what's been done at the moment. And that obviously makes it difficult to roll out phages more widely. So that there are companies that are trying to develop off-the-shelf phage therapies by creating cocktails of different phages. But it's not yet clear how effective these will be. But phage cocktails are already being sold commercially in the U.S., and some other places, but they've been sprayed on foods to kill dangerous bacteria rather than being used to treat infections. Hmm, that's interesting. Like, it's quite that specificity of them. It, it, on the one hand, it sounds really good, right? Because you can just target one thing. But on the other hand, it's quite limiting. It sounds like phage therapy isn't going to be like a miracle solution to the antibiotic resistance crisis. No, I think even the most ardent proponents of phage therapy acknowledge that it has a lot of limitations. But it can be very effective, and I think it's going to be used more and more as more and more bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. In fact, we simply might not have any other choice. So when I asked one interviewee why there's so much interest in phage therapy now, her answer was actually rather ominous. It's desperation, she said. Next up, what can anthropology tell us about artificial intelligence? Our video reporter Emily Bates spoke to Beth Singler from the University of Cambridge about her research on how we think about AI. She began by asking, Beth, are the robots going to take over? <laughs> it is actually probably one of the most common questions I get asked. Um, I think it's actually more interesting that we keep asking that question, that we keep returning to this fear narrative, that we're concerned about the things that we're creating, how they might be like us in terms of intelligence, but also how they might be like us in terms of our bad traits, like our rebelliousness or our selfishness or our violence. And also you know, the utopian ideas about what the future might be like with robots that can do things for us. So reflecting more on that than the actual answer to the question because I don't have the answer to that question. So you don't know? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so is there anything we should be concerned about in AI? Is there sort of, you know, entrenched biases or mm. are they going to take all the jobs? <laughs> well, absolutely. Everything that we create as humans reflects our context, our culture, our interests. And when it comes to algorithmic decision-making systems, the data that we choose to input into them leads to certain outcomes. We can say rubbish in, rubbish out. But we also want to be very careful we don't personify AI so much that we decide it has agency that it doesn't really have. And we see sort of reactions to the algorithms that made decisions about people's A-level grades and a couple of summers ago that actually the decisions behind the scenes were very much human ones. So we want to be very clear that there are always humans in the loop in the creation and we need to be careful what kind of outcomes we see. 
So is there a danger then of us almost starting to treat AI in almost too much of a reverent way, almost like a godlike fashion? Yes, absolutely. Some of my research looks specifically at where we not just personify AI, but actually in some ways deify AI and start thinking about the algorithms behind the scenes making decisions, actually blessing us in some way that because of the lack of transparency about how AI is being employed and what kind of values are being inputted into AI by corporations, it seems like it's acting in mysterious ways. And then we draw on our existing language and narratives and tropes from existing cultural contexts like religious ideas, and therefore we lead into talking about AI as in some form of God having oversight over us. So talking about intelligence and human level intelligence, how far are we and how will we know when we've made a machine that actually has the same kind of level of intelligence as we do? It comes down to really what we conceive of as intelligence and how we describe success in AI. So for a long time, since the very conception of the term artificial intelligence, it's about being very good at doing simple tasks, bounded tasks in a very simplistic domain. And then over time, those domains become more complicated, but still it's about being successful. So the whole history of AI playing computer games, for instance, all the way from the simple boards of tic-tac-toe and chess, all the way up to Go and StarCraft II, this is developmental, but it's still framed around success and failure. And we need to ask, is that actually what we think intelligence is? Is intelligence being good at games of that nature? So what, what would be the ideal game that an AI could play and you would say, you know what, you've, you've raised the bar? <laughs> Well, I am a massive and unrepentant geek, and I really enjoy playing Dungeons & Dragons. And I think what's really valuable about that form of game playing is that it's collaborative storytelling. There are players who will feel like there is a way to win Dungeons & Dragons, but actually it's much more about the experience of playing together rather than success or failure. And I think if you could have an AI that could understand that collaboration, then you'd be much, much closer to something that we might think of as embodied intelligence or communal human intelligence. The problem arises that is that that might actually be the leap to artificial general intelligence to be able to do that so on the artificial general intelligence, can you just explain a little bit what that actually means? Okay, so artificial intelligence generally at the moment is very narrow. It can do specific things very, very well, even to sort of super intelligent level that playing the Go playing system, AlphaGo, could beat a human already, but it can't do anything else. It can't get up from the board and decide to go and do something else entirely, so it's very narrowly focused. Artificial general intelligence is the idea of an AI that can do a number of things and move between them quite easily. So that can be used as a synonym for human-level AI intelligence, and some people see it as the step just before some form of superintelligence or even the very mysterious thing people refer to as the technological singularity. And what is the technological <laughs> singularity? <laughs> well, with the vision of intelligence that we work with generally, in this discussion, it's, it's exponential. So the idea is if AI could reach human level intelligence, it might then surpass it into super intelligence and then perhaps go into an area that we don't even completely understand, where its intelligence is so far beyond our conception that it would be the equivalent of a cosmological singularity that you have in a, a black hole or at the beginning of the universe. And we don't know how to really conceive or describe that, but science fiction tries to go there with ideas about uh, intelligent sentient machines that react in particular ways to humans, sometimes quite negatively. Or it could be that, that we're swept up into this form of intelligence and it becomes some sort of form of sort of secular rapture moment. Uh, and it becomes very sort of utopian, heavenly describing words that are involved. What could the consequences of that be? 
Well, for some groups uh, that are generally described as transhumanist, that might be a very positive outcome, that actually they think this might be a route towards some sort of form of immortality in a different framework, that we might escape our physical bodies and become minds uploaded into this singularity space and therefore may live forever, be able to explore the universe and you know experience everything that is possible to experience. And for them, that's a very positive thing. And then others are concerned that a technological singularity as a singular entity, so an AI in itself, might lead to, again, negative consequences. So the kind of a, an exponential version of the robot rebellion, where this deity version of the AI judges us, doesn't like us, gets rid of us for various reasons. What is your hope for the future of AI? I would like to see the technology used in appropriate and fair and responsible ways. And I think that's quite a common desire. And we're seeing more and more pushes towards that. My concerns are more about human involvement in making the decisions about how AI is used than AI sort of running away and becoming this disastrous thing in itself. I think as long as people are educated about the uses of AI and how it's going to impact their lives, then we can have a, a positive future with AI. Fascinating stuff. If you'd like to hear more from Beth Singler, she'll be speaking in February at our live event in London all about understanding the AI revolution. For details and tickets, visit newscientist.com events, and we'll put a link in the show notes. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed our show, please tell your friends about it and subscribe. We'll place links to all of the stories that we mentioned in our show notes and we'll tweet them too. And before you go, we just wanted to let you know that New Scientist's first online event of the year takes place next week. It's all about nutrition and mental health. On the 27th of January, Professor of Psychiatry Ted Dinan will be exploring how our gut microbiomes link what we eat to how we feel. That's all part of our health and wellbeing online event series. The talk will be on the 27th at 6pm GMT and available on demand online afterwards. Visit newscientist.com nutrition for more information and to get your ticket. Big thanks to all our guests this week, Beth Singler, Michael LePage, Alice Klein and Alex Wilkins. And thank you too for listening. Goodbye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 